for you. Well, hey, everybody. It's good to see you. Yeah, I know. It's a little, it's a little strange, like watching yourself on video. Um, but no, for those of you who didn't get the joke, I did cut my hair. That's, that's, that's the change that you're disoriented. We were doing a photo booth yesterday, and it was kind of fun, you know, because my back was turned to people as they were coming in. And the number of people who were like, I know that voice, but I, who is that? Sounds like Stephen. Well, we're continuing our Advent series here, looking at the birth of Jesus through Matthew's account of the coming and the visitation of the Magi. And the second outsider that Matthew introduces into his nativity story is one whom he specifically refers to in the first part of his gospel as King Herod. Uh, And if the Magi represent humanity seeking out God under the power of grace, then Herod represents what it looks like when humanity uh, seek out the rival kingdom under the power of sin. A rival to the kingdom that Jesus has brought into the world. And the most consistent struggle of our lives is always the one about which kingdom are you going to choose to live in. And so if you brought your Bible, I want to invite you to turn to Matthew chapter 2, verses 1 through 8, as Leslie comes to read our scripture passage this morning. And I want to invite you to listen carefully, for you are hearing God's word. Our sermon text is from Matthew chapter 2, verses 1 to 8. After Jesus was born in Bethlehem in Judea during the time of King Herod, Magi from the east came to Jerusalem and asked, Where is the one who has been born king of the Jews? We saw his star when it rose and have come to worship him. When King Herod heard this, he was disturbed and all Jerusalem with him. When he had called together all the people's chief priests and teachers of the law, he asked them where the Messiah was to be born. In Bethlehem, in Judea, they replied, for this is what the prophet has written. But you, Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, are by no means least among the rulers of Judah. For out of you will come a ruler who will shepherd my people Israel. Then Herod called the Magi secretly and found out from them the exact time the star had appeared. He sent them to Bethlehem and said, Go and search carefully for the child. As soon as you find him, report to me so that I too may go and worship him. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. And now, mighty God, we come having heard your word, expectant of a word that is from you, that will speak to our hearts and shed light. We ask this in the name of the one who is the word made flesh, Jesus Christ, our Lord. Amen. Uh, Historically, Herod was a really interesting person to be sitting on the throne of Israel. The academic Ken Bailey offers a quick snapshot of who he was. Being racially Arab, religiously Jewish, culturally Greek, and politically Roman, Herod was a complex man, which is a way of saying that he had mastered the art of expediency, of being whoever he needed to be, depending on what crowd he was talking to. 
And if you were to just go by the numbers, Herod the Great appeared to have a pretty successful administration. He kept order. He oversaw a lot of significant building projects in the life of Israel, including a massive uh, improvement project to the temple, several aqueducts bringing fresh water into the city, and a massive fortress which he named after himself. And although he taxed the people heavily in order to pay for it, uh, there is time in history we, lo- we know that when things got tough, when there was a famine in the land, he was able to provide for his people. On top of all that, he had this, this knack for stealing people's lunch money and then making them feel really grateful when he gave them back crumbs from his table. There's a story, in fact, that uh, captures his political savviness. Uh, He made a gamble to side with his friends Antony and Cleopatra in their struggle against Octavian for control of the Roman Empire, just to kind of give you the time frame of when this was happening. And later, when Octavian defeated Antony and took on the title of Caesar Augustus, he marched his armies toward Jerusalem in order to destroy all those who had been allied against him. And so Herod, sensing the doom that was coming, rode out to meet Caesar. And instead of, you know, uh, showing up in force, he came humbly. He took off his crown and he said, Caesar, I ask you not to consider whose friend I was, but rather how good of a friend I was. Well, apparently it worked. It impressed Caesar so much that he told him to put his crown back on. And in one shrewd political move, he not only averted disaster, but he consolidated his reign. As you can imagine, you can get a lot of mileage out of that story when you tell people that you single-handedly you know, kept them from experiencing defeat by Rome. For its part, Uh, Rome was actually quite happy to have Herod around because he managed to keep the grain and the money flowing and and he managed to also keep peace in this troublesome area with this troublesome people. And so in a way, Herod's job was basically to numb people to the reality of an occupying army. In other words, Herod's job was to help people live with how it is. Now, to the people of Israel who were shaped by Isaiah's vision of this peaceful kingdom and the hope of God's reign, the, the, the rule of his shalom breaking into the world spelled out in the promise of these words, for to us a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government will be on his shoulders, and he will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Of the greatness of his government and peace, there will be no end. He will reign on David's throne and over his kingdom, establishing it and upholding it with justice and righteousness from that time on and forever. The zeal of the Lord Almighty will accomplish this. To go from those words to the reality of living comfortably with Herod is on some level to know that you have traded the land of promise for the land of compromise. You tell yourself, well, yeah, I mean, it may not be perfect, but at least Herod keeps us safe and secure. People tend to put a lot of stock in feeling safe and secure. It's one of the reasons why they called him Herod the Great. Herod himself, on the other hand, he didn't feel so secure. 
Uh, toward the end of his reign, in fact, he was really, really paranoid about losing all of his power. And so in order to kind of secure his place, he went about murdering everybody he thought would betray him, including his wife, his mother, his mother-in-law. I don't think he had to do that one. He killed three of his four sons. And like some real Game of Thrones stuff going on here. And that may help us understand why Matthew later tells us that uh, all of the small children in Bethlehem were slaughtered because the Magi came asking the question, who is this and where will we find the one who is born king of the Jews? So people had really complicated feelings about this complicated guy. He made them feel safe. They loved that, but they hated what it cost. The Jewish historian Josephus tells us that at his deathbed, Herod gave orders to have all of the nobility and all of the elite of Israel rounded up so that at the moment that he died, he could have them killed just to make sure that there would be weeping when he died. Real peach of a guy. So that was Herod, the kind of leader that you held your nose to get behind because you love what his kingdom will do for you. You just hate what it costs you. And you hate what it does to you. I don't think it's so hard of a stretch to see that there is a kingdom like Herod's out there that has gained power and control in our lives, what Paul calls the powers and principalities of this world. You get seduced into going along, maybe even calling this kingdom great because you love what it does for us. It does a whole lot, either because it helps us get what we want, it makes us feel secure, or helps us just kind of live with the status quo. And these kingdoms, they're just another name that we give to things that offer us something we desire at a price we can't afford. You love what this kingdom does for you. You just hate what it costs. Even though the tax is high, you keep paying it, even if it feels like you're just living with table scraps. This is something a little bit on the nose for Christmas time, a way that the kingdom works its way in. One poll found that more than half of shoppers are going into debt this Christmas season. And you dig into the reasons of why that is. Almost half say it's to make themselves happy. 41% say it's to make their children happy. Uh, 41% say that it's to make their spouse or partner happy. And then 44% say it's to make a friend or family member happy. And there's a kernel of truth in all that, right? And I am all for exchanging gifts at Christmas time. I love the look on a loved one's face when you get a gift and they feel like you really see them, like you really get them. There's nothing quite like that. But the question behind all that is, does all the spending, all the debt, the amount of money that gets poured into stores this Christmas even, does it ever really succeed on its promise of buying happiness? Or is it just a way of kind of lulling you into a kingdom that only knows how to grind you down to the same old story of desire, use, repeat? For some of us, Herod ushers us into his rival kingdom in a different way, with a narrative that's all about killing it at work. And like all seductions, you know, there is some truth in that. There's a good that comes when we work hard, when we succeed. We were made to work. We were made to find joy and fulfillment and delight in the work that we do. But kind of the way that Herod's kingdom numbs you is, you know, from experiencing the right kind of joy 
is by selling you on a narrative that you are what you produce, that you're not going to find any sort of happiness unless you chase after success at all costs. And it turns out that's just another kind of addiction. Maybe 19 months ago when you started working from home, uh, it was maybe the first time in your life you had some real boundaries there. And you were able to just kind of, you know, leave the room when the work was done, put down the phone, go out to the dinner table, be present with your family or with your, with your friends, play games, enjoy some time around a fire pit. But then somewhere along the way, you started losing track of all the hours that you were spending in the office. It was really easy to just keep working because the commute was short. And so you traded in meals with loved ones for a quick bite between phone calls. And your soul still craved date nights and time out with friends, but your body was just so tired from killing it at work all throughout the week. Meanwhile, you're starting to get noticed and the accolades start coming in because you're, you're producing a lot and it, followed, it gets followed by promotions and it feels really good for a while to finally be recognized for what you're able to do. But then over time, you notice that the, the win column of successes is getting tilted by all of the the losses that you've sustained in your life along the way, the missed soccer games, the, you know, vacations that are working vacations, right? And then someone who needs you comes to you and says, can't you see that all that you have been doing in the name of killing it is really just killing you and killing us? Others of us still, Herod's kingdom comes creeping in through narratives about old wounds that we keep nursing that keep us from really moving on and growing. Now, you didn't do anything to deserve these wounds. Some of them were deep cuts by a family member or by friends, maybe even by a church. And maybe it happened a long time ago, and you, you try to go past it, you try to forgive, but you can't seem to let it go because you're afraid that it's going to happen again. And Maybe you have even found a way to distract yourself for a while, but the pain is still there, nagging at you, calling at you. And while you don't like it, you, you, you hate it even, all of your attempts to be reconciled, to be free, come at a loss because deep down, you're not sure who you are apart from your pain. You've been living with it for so long. The pain has become so comfortable that it's the only way you know how to live. And so the relationships that you do have, the, the friendships you seek out, they're the ones that remind you of the pain because that's the only way you know how to navigate life. And then on some level, because you think you deserve it. When you love the things that hurt you, whether it's a relationship, an addiction, or a job that you would give your whole life for, well, then you know what it's like to live under the reign of Herod's kingdom. We find ourselves in a situation that John Mark Comer describes, the problem is less and less that we tell lies and more that we live them. We let false narratives about reality into our bodies and they wreak havoc on our souls. In an urban center like ours, Herod's voice echoes the false narrative that says, don't worry too much about the disparity in housing or about how justice is doled out between people whose skin color is different. 
It's the voice that says, don't worry too much about things like poverty and, and children who are unwanted by their mothers and unrecognized by their fathers. And don't you dare think about other parts of the world whose Advent celebration is marked by real persecution. You've got problems of your own. And by the way, that's just how the world is. And at least you can get by where you are. But friends, the cost of ignoring these things isn't just what happens out there in the world to others who are trampled. It's also a cost that we bear in our own souls. The cost of ignoring the world means that the world looks more and more like the kingdom of Herod and less and less like the kingdom of promise that is coming. And here's the thing. Since he is super paranoid about losing power, Herod is going to do just about anything he can to keep you in line, anything he can to keep you blind from seeing all the ways it costs you. Well, one day, there were these magi who showed up in his kingdom, totally unannounced, and they asked the question, where is this one who is born king of the Jews? And Matthew lets us know that this question was disturbing to Herod because as we found out, Herod is a pretty paranoid guy. Doesn't want any other rivals to come to his kingdom that he's trying to hold up. And so it makes sense that Herod would be troubled. But something that popped out to me this time that I'd never quite seen before is that Matthew lets us know that all of Jerusalem was troubled right along with him. Which is to say that the people were not necessarily shouting for joy with news of a savior who would deliver them the promise of a new kingdom. My guess is, is it's not because they were happy with Herod. It's just because they learned how to live with Herod. You know, something really funny about people is that we have always preferred the pain that we know to the uncertainty that we do not know. And just because we have learned how to settle with compromise does not mean that we are ready to be led into the land of promise. Friends, that's also exactly what the Christmas story is about. That's exactly what our hope is about. Because Jesus' kingdom is the reality of which Herod's is only ever the parody. And he did not just come into this world to give us a break from living in Herod's world. He came into this world to reclaim it and renew it. And that means delivering us into a different kingdom altogether. I don't want you to miss this. Matthew makes no bones about this declaration that it is dynamite to the kingdoms of this world. Herod is aware that, 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 that this is what's going on. And so that's why he tries so hard to root out this Savior. Why his kingdom does everything that it can to keep you numb, to keep you complacent. Powers and principalities. They know that Jesus is king. And they know that his kingdom is the only place where you are going to find the hope that you are looking for. And so they will do all that they can to keep your hope numb. Jesus is the only one who can free you to enjoy all of the things that you already have in your life. 
The only one who can unwind the lie that your value is rooted in what you produce. The only one who can set you free from the hurt that has been holding you back. The only one who can set your heart free to to break for the pain of the world around us. That can allow you to see the disparity between the world as it is and the world that is promised. The world that is coming into being through him. There's an ancient saint of the church named Irenaeus who once said that the glory of God is a human being fully alive. And in the arrival of Jesus, that is what God is saying to you and to me. That all you have to do to be fully alive is to uh, stop chasing after hope in all of the shadow kingdoms of this world and to embrace the hope that has come in the kingdom that is here through the Savior that has come and is coming again. And this hope that you have, it will grow into your salvation because the child that is born grows into a man. And that man walked among us in our pain and in our joy, in our beauty and in our brokenness. He saw all the ways that we foreclosed upon hope and yet he had the audacity to proclaim a kingdom that was coming that would deliver us into a new reality altogether. A kingdom that was coming that was so threatening that the kingdoms of this world executed him and on the cross that he died upon wrote the thing that was pronounced at his birth, here is the king of the Jews. But then this king, he conquered death and he rose to tell us that nothing can chase this hope away because this new kingdom is God's greatest desire for us. And so yes, if you pick up the newspaper, you might think that Herod is running things. And you can even get by by saying, well, that's just how it is. But friends, once you have seen the king that was born you will never feel at home in any other kingdom again. Because this king has come to set you free. And Advent is the time that we proclaim that this struggle is no longer between us and the kingdoms of the world because the king has come and taken up the struggle on our behalf. That is what the incarnation is about, that God became flesh and dwelled among us. The Savior came to die for us. The King has come to set us free. That is the joy and the hope that we celebrate at Christmas. Christmas. 